Welcome to the Mentor of the Month podcast. I'm Stuart Anderson. The Mentor of the Month program has been part of the Crown Council since the very beginning. And in this Mentor of the Month recording, Steve Anderson will share some secrets of team motivation, some insights from his life on how to motivate teams, create more productivity, how to create even better team members from your existing talent base, and how to create a legacy of team productivity and motivation that will improve your practice and the quality of your work life. The Crown Council is an international association of leading dental teams dedicated to seeking out and sharing best practices in order to improve the quality of care in every area of dentistry. For more information about the Crown Council, visit the Crown Council website, www.crowncouncil.org. And please enjoy this Mentor of the Month recording with Steve Anderson. A common question we hear from experienced Crown Council dentists is, when can I quit training my team? I train and retrain, so when will they get it and when will we be done? Well, the answer to those questions is probably the same answer to the question, when can I quit eating right, exercising, and quit sleeping? Team education and improvement is a never-ending process. The moment you think you're done is the moment you're done in. We train, we educate, we have team meetings and morning meetings to help every member of the team continually improve, be more productive, and most of all, stay motivated. Day in and day out, how do you motivate your team? Are you using incentives, bonuses, days off, or special recognition? Whatever you do, take a few minutes to listen and re-listen as we explore the deeper psychology of team member motivation and separate fact from fiction. My hope in all of this is that you'll gain a new perspective that will instill a renewed enthusiasm to your approach to team motivation. With the right management techniques that create the right environment, individual motivation and team motivation will increase. So let's start with some commonly held myths of team member motivation. Most of our management behavior comes from instinctual reactions based on deep-seated beliefs. While most of those beliefs are not changed without an experience that shifts our thinking and behavior, sometimes the intellectual recognition of commonly held beliefs that are not based on reality will start us on a journey of discovery that will lead us to correct beliefs and behavior that will help us get the results we want. So what are some of the most common myths of team motivation that get us in trouble? Myth number one, I can motivate my team. In just a moment, we'll discuss the difference between movement and motivation. Many times we think because we can cause team members to move or do something that we want them to do, that we're motivating them. Well, if I want my lazy dog to get up off the carpet and go outside, I can kick the dog and he'll move where I want him to go. But is he motivated? No. I was the one who was motivated to get him to do something different. I got the dog to move, but motivated in the long term, he's not. Many times we confuse movement with motivation. As we'll discover in just a minute, many of the most commonly used motivational techniques are not motivational at all. They just get people to move for a moment and then they're back to their old comfortable behavior. While movement comes from without, motivation comes from within. You can get people to move, but motivating them is a different proposition. Just remember, you can't motivate your team. Myth number two, money is a good motivator. With all the discussion in dentistry about having the right bonus system and incentive program, you would think that money is the best way to motivate. In just a moment, we'll discover the difference between job factors that minimize job dissatisfaction and factors that increase motivation. 
We'll also discuss the latest findings on what workers really want. You may be surprised to learn where money really falls in order of priority and what the effect really is in the workplace. Myth number three, fear is a good motivator. In a well-known corporate downsizing effort, while everyone was scrambling to make themselves look indispensable, an insightful mid-level manager hung a sign in his door proclaiming, quote, firings will continue until morale improves. The use of fear or the threat of something unpleasant rarely accomplishes anything but temporary movement by the team member in question. One of the proclaimed missions of quality guru Dr. W. Edwards Deming was to drive out fear from the workplace. He said, quote, No one can put in his best performance unless he feels secure. C comes from the Latin meaning without. Cure means fear or care. Secure means without fear not afraid to express ideas, not afraid to ask questions. Fear takes on many faces. A common denominator of fear in any form, anywhere, is loss from impaired performance. In a study released by Columbia University Department of Psychiatry in 2004, scientists were able to prove that the experience of a single threatening situation alters the behavior of an animal in a long-lasting way. So it could be concluded that fear does alter long-term behavior. The only problem is that the change is usually in negative ways, such as impaired creativity, reluctant initiative, and reduced morale. Using fear in any form may create the deception of temporary victory in the area of the movement desired, but long-term motivation, it's not. Myth number four, I know what motivates me, and that's what motivates everyone. Ask anyone who's in any type of management role, and they'll openly confess that they don't believe that everyone is motivated in the same way. However, when you examine their behavior, it's common to see the same motivational techniques being used for all team members or one method being used over and over for years. In just a moment, we'll discover more about anchors or what motivates different people at work, and we'll see not only that what motivates us is not what motivates others, but what motivates one team member is probably not what motivates another team member. Myth number five, increased job satisfaction means increased job performance. As we'll see in just a moment, decreasing job dissatisfaction and increasing job satisfaction are two different propositions. But satisfaction alone does not always translate into performance. I may love my job and the people I work with, but if I don't believe in the direction of the practice or the goals that have been set, then I'm not going to be motivated to perform at a high level. At the most important points, The goals of the organization must align with the goals of the team member. Myth number six, I know what motivates my team. While many leaders and managers think that they know what rings a team member's bell, recent research indicates how far off base many of us are in our assumptions. A recent study done by Dr. Ken Kovac released in Employment Relations Today demonstrates the stark contrast between what team members really want and what leaders think they want. Managers from leading companies all over the country were surveyed and asked to rank the top 10 reward factors they thought their employees wanted most. Their ranked list was as follows. Good work wages, followed by job security, promotion and growth, good working conditions, interesting work, personal loyalty to employees, tactful discipline, appreciation, help with personal problems, and finally, a feeling of being in on things. When the team members of those managers were surveyed, however, and asked to rank the things that motivated them, their list came out quite different. 
Topping the employee list was interesting work, followed closely by appreciation and a feeling of being in on things. The employee list continued with job security, good wages, promotion and growth, good working conditions, personal loyalty, tactful discipline, and finally help with personal problems. The most revealing discovery in this survey is that what team members say motivates them and what leaders think motivates them are often very different. The most visible difference between the two ranked lists is that managers thought pay was the most important motivator, while employees ranked good wages as fifth after appreciation, interesting work, feeling in on things, and job security. The bottom line here is that most of us have no clue about what really motivates the team. And the moment you think you've got it figured out, look again, because someone probably just changed their mind. As we'll discover, different things motivate different people, and there's not just one formula that necessarily works for everyone. So, the first step in motivating your team is to look at yourself. Are you guilty of any of the six myths of motivation? Again, they are myth one, I can motivate my team. Myth two, money's a good motivator. Myth three, fear is a good motivator. Myth four, I know what motivates me and that's what motivates everyone. Myth five, job satisfaction means better job performance. And myth six, I know what motivates my team. The fact remains, one, you can't motivate your team. Two, money alone is not a motivator. Three, fear does not motivate. Four, what motivates you is not what motivates everyone else. Five, there's a lot more involved in job performance than just job satisfaction. And six, you think you know what motivates your team? Think again. So if you've come to the conclusion that there may be more to team motivation than what you originally thought, and you might be guilty of believing in some of the myths of team motivation, get ready as we explore one of the most important discoveries made in the last 50 years about what team motivation really is and what makes it work. In 1968, Dr. Frederick Hertzberg released his research on how to motivate employees. His discoveries and conclusions have become classic. A sound understanding of Hertzberg's philosophy goes a long way in developing a good plan to create an environment where team members are motivated in the long term. The first aspect of motivation that most people miss is the difference between motivation and movement. While they're often confused because the immediate behavioral results appear very similar, the different dynamics that create movement and motivation are very different and produce vastly different long-term consequences. Movement is an action taken to produce a desired immediate result. Movement can be produced in a number of ways, including force, fear, or inducement. If I kick the dog, I can get it to move. Likewise, if I hold a treat out for the dog, I can get it to move as well. But the next time I want the dog to move, I have to use the same tactic. Movement is a reaction to an outside influence and requires constant reinforcement and stresses short-term results. Motivation, on the other hand, is a function of growth from getting intrinsic rewards out of interesting and challenging work. Motivation is based on growth needs. It's an internal engine. Its benefits show up over a long period of time. Since movement and motivation are often confused, let's take a look at three common popular tactics taken to get employees to move. Keep in mind that while they may move, they're not necessarily motivated and the long-term behavior will probably not be sustained. 
These tactics are similar in nature to the dog owner who uses tactics and techniques to get the dog to move. Tactic number one, give the dog a swift physical kick. Inexperienced dog owners use physical force and fear to get the dog to move. Inexperienced leaders do the same. While they may not physically kick the employee, similar techniques are common, like criticizing the employee in front of the rest of the team. It may relieve some stress and produce some of immediate movement, but the long-term consequences rarely produce motivation. I'm familiar with one dental office where the monthly staff meeting is well known as a time where the doctor rounds up all his, quote, dogs and kicks all of them as a group by enumerating all of the group's shortcomings as well as the recent failings of the individuals. It's no surprise that this office has high turnover as the employees seek a safer, more secure employment home elsewhere. Not surprisingly, turnover at home mirrors the office in this case as it typically does as this doctor's spouse fled to find a friendlier environment as well. Another technique is to kick the dog in front of patients by letting the team member know in clear terms that they're not performing up to the doctor's high standards. Or how about kicking the dog with extra work hours because the office is falling behind in some area or another. We would all agree that a physical kick does not produce the type of kind, benevolent image desired in a dental practice, and it only stimulates the autonomic nervous system to do one thing, either run away or bite back in self-defense. Tactic number two. Give the dog a psychological kick. This is a much more sophisticated approach because the cruelty is less visible and the bleeding is internal. Psychological kicks include showing favoritism, intentionally ignoring those that are not performing, talking to other staff members about the shortcomings of the offending team member with hopes that they'll get the message indirectly. Psychological kicks are much more passive and comforting to the kicker because he or she can always plead ignorance if confronted. Tactic number three, a positive kick or give a dog a bone. Instead of a swift kick of punishment, this is where you entice the dog with a reward if he or she does your bidding. Is this really motivation? With the popularity and widespread ongoing discussion of bonus plans and incentives, it's obvious that most think incentives create motivation. But consider this. When the dog was a puppy and I wanted to move it, I resorted to the fastest, most efficient method of getting the puppy to move. So I kicked it, and it moved. But now that the dog has completed obedience training, I can hold up a biscuit when I want it to move. But remember, it is I who want the dog to move. I'm the one who is motivated, and the dog is the one who moves. The only difference between kicking the dog and holding out the bone is the side of the dog that I am on, the front versus the back. While most all would agree that kicking the dog or using negative methods to get people to move is not motivation, most might say that giving the dog a bone or using some type of employee incentive or bonus is motivation. Excuse the word picture, but negative methods are abuse, while positive methods are merely seduction. It's why relying on, quote, positive methods of getting employees to move are so popular. It's a tradition. It's the American way. In 1976, two economists, Michael Jensen and William Meckling, 
produced a paper that fueled the employee incentive bonus fire in companies and organizations everywhere. For over three decades, it's been the most cited and relied upon document for managers and leaders that use bonuses and incentives as a motivational tactic. Jensen and Meckling attempted to answer the question, why don't employees and managers always act in the best interest of shareholders, i.e. the owners of the business? Jensen and Meckling proposed that it's because people always act in accordance with the way you pay them. The solution? Just align employee compensation with owner interests and the employee will be motivated to act in the owner's interest. In other words, if you want someone to do something, just give them an incentive or bonus and it will get done. The theory has become so widespread, in fact, that it has crept into the home front as these same leaders offer monetary incentives to their children for good grades. In other words, give the dog a bone for good behavior. As you know from your background in science, the best way to test a theory is to find the exceptions, the anomalies, the things it can't explain. For example, if your team has participated in the Smiles for Life campaign, you probably experienced high levels of team productivity as you worked together to whiten patients' teeth for no compensation at all. If you participated in the Crown Council's dental humanitarian efforts in the Dominican Republic, you've witnessed high levels of motivation from those involved to work in challenging conditions at their own expense for the benefit of others. Those are just two examples within the Crown Council where monetary incentive is not the motivating factor. Additionally, we've experienced case after case of dental offices that offer some of the highest wages and incentive pay in their market but continue to have above average turnover. If it were just about the pay, wouldn't these offices have some of the highest tenured teams in the industry? While we're addressing this myth that I'd like to call a half-truth that incentives in and of themselves create the motivation and are the way to motivate people, let me just say this. We're not saying that incentives are inherently wrong altogether. But when we deceive ourselves by using incentives only to, quote, motivate the team, we're only fooling ourselves. They're not motivated to act on their own in the long term. They only move in the short term to get the bone or the incentive. The biggest problem is obvious. If I want movement again the next time, I have to offer another incentive. And there are a lot of bones that are tempting to offer in the dental workplace. Let's review just a few that we may be led to believe create motivation when in fact they're only a bone. The most talked about bone or incentive is the team bonus as a way to motivate. Regularly, we get requests from doctors who attempt to motivate their teams to do more and work harder by offering them a team bonus as an incentive. Absent work environment characteristics that we'll discuss in a moment, these leaders usually find that behavior does not change and they're disappointed. In fact, many leaders attempt to use bonuses and incentives as a crutch for poor leadership skills. If I just offer them enough money, as the logic goes, they'll put up with my other shortcomings. The tactic rarely works. Turnover continues and productivity wanes unless other significant changes take place. The trap is using money as an incentive versus recognition. When it's used as an incentive, the message is, we have to pay you to do everything here. It's like the child who has been raised in a monetary incentive environment whose parent asks him if he would take out the garbage, and he responds, how much are you going to pay me? Incentives have been used to such a point that the boy's motivated to do nothing without a bone. How would you like to have that boy or someone like him as your future employee, business partner, or spouse? I don't think so. Another popular incentive bone in dentistry is reducing practice time. This is a great way to motivate people to work by getting them off the job. 
In fact, dentistry seems to honor practices that have reduced their work week to only a handful of days. I sometimes wonder if the goal in dentistry is to arrive at the six and a half day weekend. (laughs) The fact is that motivated people love to work and enjoy doing more of it. Unmotivated people are eager to get off the job as fast as they can. They're far more motivated by other things that provide them true motivation factors since they're not getting those things at work. Another tempting bone is to give raises. While that's appropriate and deserved in many cases, motivation, it is not. In fact, it takes the average person less than two weeks to adjust his or her standard of living to a new wage. The effect is short-lived. That's why some bonus plans and incentives can be counter-motivating. If I receive the bonus two months in a row, now it's expected. The first month I don't get the bonus, now I'm really ticked because I've adjusted my standard of living to account for the bonus. And so what was meant to be a bone just turned into a swift psychological kick. And how about fringe benefits? Health insurance, a 401k plan, flex benefit accounts, extra vacation time, all are worthy fringe benefits that may entice a good team member to join your practice, but motivation it's not. Fringe benefits are nothing more than entitlements today. They're expected, but they don't motivate. We could go on. There are numerous incentive bones in dentistry. Many of them are necessary today, even required if you want to be a competitive employer in your marketplace. Just don't deceive yourself into thinking that any of these popular tactics are really motivating your team members. Some of them might create temporary movement, but they're not long-term motivators. If what we're talking about ultimately is motivation and an inner self-generated drive, then there has to be more to the equation than just trying to create movement. In the end, movement is not motivation. There's a big difference. So the next time you're trying to get your team to move, ask yourself, am I just kicking the dog or giving the dog a bone to try to get it to move, or am I engaging in activities that will create self-generated motivation? Acknowledging to yourself what you're really doing is the first step toward creating long-term motivation. Remember, don't confuse movement with motivation. Motivation will cause movement, but movement is not necessarily motivation. So now that we've talked about what motivation is not, the question remains, How do you install a generator in a team member so that they're genuinely motivated, so that you don't have to kick, scream, or throw out bones to get them to move? What we'll discover are two very important sets of factors that you must address that create two different results. Both are important. Both must be addressed. In one of the most replicated job attribute studies ever conducted, Dr. Hertzberg discovered that the factors that created employee motivation were separate and distinct from the factors that led to job dissatisfaction and low morale. Let me repeat that. The factors that create motivation are different than the factors that create dissatisfaction. In other words, Job satisfaction and dissatisfaction are not opposites. They're two altogether different propositions. The opposite of satisfaction is not dissatisfaction, but rather no satisfaction at all. And so it follows that the opposite of dissatisfaction is not satisfaction, but rather no job dissatisfaction confused yet? (laughs) To understand this a little more clearly, consider the emotion of love. What's the opposite of love? Initially, you might say hate, but when you think about it more carefully, I'm sure you'd agree that there have been people in your life that you dearly loved, but at times you were absolutely infuriated with them. The opposite of love, then, is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. So it is on the job. 
The opposite of dissatisfaction is no dissatisfaction. The opposite of satisfaction is no satisfaction. So let's take a look at how this works in the office. We're all familiar with the traditional and well-known psychology of human motivation, avoid pain and seek pleasure. The absence of pain is not necessarily pleasure. Neither is the absence of pleasure mean that there's pain. They are two different things, just as the factors that create satisfaction and dissatisfaction are different. So let's take a look at what creates pain or dissatisfaction on the job and what creates long-term motivation or pleasure. The primary factors that create dissatisfaction have mostly to do with the external environment. We'll call them environmental factors or characteristics that are extrinsic to the job. They include the following. One, unfair or what's perceived to be unfavorable office practices and administrative rules. Imagine walking into a physician's office with policies and rules plastered all over the window at the front desk. You must present your insurance card for verification before your appointment. Your copay is due at the time of service. Return checks carry a minimum $30 fee. Wait for assistance until your name is called. By the time you've read all the office policies, if you weren't sick when you walked in, you certainly are feeling sick now. The same holds true in the workplace. Rules and policies that create an atmosphere of managerial antagonism toward the staff members creates job dissatisfaction. Two, poor supervision. The dread of most every team member who works in the front office is the day the doctor doesn't have enough to do, so he or she starts meddling in the front office asking a lot of questions like, why are these charts over here? Did the deposit get made yesterday? Have all the patients been confirmed for tomorrow? And so the inquisition continues to the point that no work can be done. The common refrain I hear from many team members is, if the doctor would just let me do my job, we could probably do it a lot faster and a lot better. A lack of good leadership could possibly be the leading cause of job dissatisfaction in dental offices everywhere. Knowing how to lead, manage, and supervise your team is a learned skill set. Know how to do it well, and you can dramatically reduce the possibility that you will have dissatisfied team members. Number three, poor interpersonal relationships. Pam Peterson, one of our Total Patient Service Institute practice advisors, constantly reminds me that team members never leave or quit a practice. They leave or quit because of an individual in that practice, whether it's the doctor a fellow team member, or the doctor's spouse, you can rest assured that if you've ever had a team member quit for practice-related reasons, it usually points back to an individual with whom they did not get along. Team harmony and good interpersonal relationships can go a long way to decreasing job dissatisfaction. Four, poor working conditions. Several years ago, I visited a business on the east coast of the United States. As we got closer to the address of the business, I watched as the nature of the neighborhood declined by the block. By the time we approached the building and drove into the parking lot, I noticed the fresh, glistening razor wire fencing that had apparently been placed recently around the building. We could not miss the sign as we entered the parking lot that said, don't back up tire ripper will deflate your tires. Your car's security while you're here at work is important to us. As we entered the building, I couldn't help but notice the sign near the door as we entered that said, never walk to your car alone after dark. As we proceeded, the offices were poorly lit. There was no floor coverings and the decor and furnishings were dated. As we began discussions with the owners, one of the first questions they had was, how can we decrease turnover? I thought for a moment and then responded, we have a well-tested proven plan for reducing turnover that will work quite well for your company. We'll be happy to drop a proposal for you right away. It's no secret that environment influences behavior and attitudes. An unpleasant work environment and poor working conditions usually lead to unhappy, dissatisfied workers. Does your team enjoy the environment they work in? Do they have the tools and materials they need to do their job? 
If not, dissatisfaction may be on the rise. Number five, salary. Pay that's not competitive ended up fifth on the list of factors that created job dissatisfaction. Pay is important, but remember back to the survey of things that managers thought workers wanted? Managers ranked pay as number one on the list. Workers ranked it fifth. Other studies rank it fifth or lower as well. Again, keep in mind that good pay is not necessarily a motivator, but poor pay and poor benefits can create a lot of dissatisfaction. So, what are you doing to lower the dissatisfaction level in your practice? Take a look at your practice policy and office rules. Are they team member friendly? Do they communicate a philosophy of partnership with your team or an attitude of distrust and suspicion? What's your leadership style and does it work well for your team? How are the interpersonal relationships in your office and how's the team harmony? What are the working conditions like? Do your team members have the resources they need to do their job and do they feel comfortable in the environment in which they work every day? And finally, are the salaries competitive with the market and fair for the work being done? Keeping an eye on these factors and managing them every day will lower dissatisfaction and keep complaints to a minimum. They are essential to a healthy, productive workplace. Now, once you've done what you can to minimize job dissatisfaction, it's time to go to work on motivation. Motivation factors are a whole different set of issues that have more to do with characteristics that are intrinsic to the job. So listen carefully as we explore how many of these characteristics are present in the job designs that you have in your practice and what you can do to improve and help your team members be more internally motivated. While minimizing job dissatisfaction has to do with managing mainly extrinsic job factors that have to do with the work environment, true motivation has to do more with intrinsic job characteristics and job design. Here's the difference. Consider the electric motor and the gas engine. Before an electric motor can run, you have to plug it in and keep it plugged in. As soon as the electric line is removed, the motor immediately stops. It's just like the employee who has to be constantly moved with a kick or a bone. Fear, incentives, bonuses, and micromanaging are the only ways to keep the employee plugged in. They're just not motivated from within, we say. That way, we have to stay motivated ourselves in order to keep them plugged in, turned on, and moving. The gas-powered engine, on the other hand, keeps producing whether it's plugged in or not. The fuel is stored within and keeps the engine going. It's a self-motivated engine, as long as it can get refueled from time to time. That's the kind of motivation that we're going to talk about. It's the kind of fuel that you really need for your practice to thrive with truly motivated team members. So here's the fuel or the intrinsic job design factors that create genuine motivation. One, a sense of accomplishment and achievement. Think about the last time you got really fired up and excited about your work. What happened? If you're like most, it probably centered around something you accomplished, something you had worked on to improve or master. Maybe it was a clinical skill a new office design, or completing a project that had a positive impact on the practice. A sense of accomplishment directly taps into the most powerful motivators. Hope, hope of a better, brighter future. Without accomplishment, there's little hope. Without hope, there's little motivation. In a moment, we'll talk about the difference between loading a job that creates overwhelm and enriching a job so that it's filled with appropriate opportunities to accomplish and achieve. Take Henry Kissinger, the former Secretary of State. His standards were high, and anyone who could put up with him certainly felt a high degree of accomplishment by meeting his expectations. Once he asked a young aide to write a draft, and then another draft, 
and then another draft of a complex report. Each time, Kissinger bounced it back for a rewrite with a note, you can do better than this. After repeated rounds of drafts that were sent back for a rewrite, the aide hand-delivered the report. As he handed the Secretary of State the report, Kissinger asked, Are you absolutely sure that this is the best you can do? The exhausted aide swore that it was. Only then did Kissinger allow, Okay, now I'll read it. Although this management style will never be written up in the annals of all-time best management techniques, he did give the people who worked for him plenty of opportunities for accomplishment and achievement. We can all think back to people who expected great performance from us. We initially worked feverishly to please them only to discover later that the person who was most pleased was ourselves for the effort we put in and the results we accomplished. One of the first and most powerful lessons I learned in the importance of accomplishment and achievement came as a sophomore in high school. Our music teacher was Julie Hewlett, who took on the impossible, teaching a group of nearly 200 young sophomore boys how to sing complicated barbershop harmony music. The best, brightest, and most talented clamored to get into her class. It was filled with the starting lineup of the football team, to the top academics in the school. It was a fascinating cross-section of the different student cultures, but they were all there for one thing. Julie Hewlett knew how to create magic in the lives of young men. She was demanding, relentless, and driven. She took the impossible and created a masterpiece. I still thrill every time I listen to the recording of that sophomore barbershop choir on the stage of Arizona State University competing in a national choir competition. The sound was amazing. The coordination was perfect. It was all for us, one of the most fulfilling accomplishments we had ever experienced. That accomplishment inspired many, if not all of us, in so many other areas of our lives to do better, to work harder, and to hold ourselves to a higher standard. A sense of accomplishment gives us hope, and that hope inspires us to accomplish even more. There's no way that pay can substitute for that kind of energy, enthusiasm, and fuel. It's not just engine fuel, it's rocket fuel. Two, the second biggest motivator is recognition for achievement. The legendary Lady in Pink and late founder of Mary Kay Cosmetics, Mary Kay Ash, attracted an army of enthusiastic sales representatives and built an empire based on the principle of recognition. Mary Kay was a firm believer that there are two things people want more than sex and money, recognition and praise. Perhaps Mary Kay listened to a simple philosophy that Sigmund Freud had when he said that everything we do comes from two motives, the sex urge and the desire to be recognized and be great. American philosopher John Dewey once said that the deepest urge in human nature is the desire to be important. While most have heard of Mary Kay, fewer people have heard of her equally impressive sister-in-law, Mary Crowley, who is also a big believer in recognition. In 1954, a man who imported gifts and decorative accessories asked Mary Crowley to become his sales manager in a new direct sales company. After three years in this new venture, Mary's staff had increased to 500 women selling gifts and accessories all over America. Her success was overwhelming, but then the owner began including cocktail parties into the company's functions, despite Mary's continual objections to the contrary. Instead of recognizing his outstanding performers, the owner put limits on commissions women could make. After being continually ignored and her ideas discarded by the owner, Mary told him she could not work for him any longer under such conditions. He reacted by having what office furniture belonged to Mary packed up and shipped to her home. Firm in her belief in herself, her products, and the power of recognition, 
Mary went on to starting a company of her own, Home Interiors and Gifts, that today boasts over 100,000 independent decorating consultants in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, with nearly $1 billion in annual sales. It's no accident that the number one item listed on Mary Crowley's Code of Ethics for her company is, We Believe in the Dignity and Importance of Women. She believed it. She acted on it by recognizing the accomplishments of those who followed her and built one of the most successful companies of its type because of it. While there are many reasons good employees quit and go to work elsewhere, the most overwhelming reason is because they feel ignored and unappreciated. In one recent study, over 46% of workers who had quit their jobs had done so because they felt unappreciated. While highly self-directed people may have strong inner resources to draw their energy from, most people's energy levels are highly dependent on the resources they get from others around them. Sincere recognition recharges everyone and fuels the fire that makes him or her eager to do more. Without it, the embers of motivation grow dimmer. Author Jim Clemmer tells a classic story of a young farmer named Arden who planted a 50-acre field of wheat that had grown to be a golden brown, very full and ready for harvest. It was a beautiful and amazing sight. When his uncle Harry came to visit, Arden took him out to look at the field of wheat. Uncle Harry looked around, put his hand over his eyes to peer into the distance, and then said, Is that a stone on the hill? Pointing to a boulder too large to move in the middle of the field. Uncle Harry said nothing about the field of wheat. Arden was crushed by his uncle's lack of enthusiasm, and the incident became legendary in the family. Several years later, Arden's daughter had just finished cutting and trimming the family's huge lawn when he arrived home and surveyed her work. You missed a patch under the tree, he pointed out. His daughter came over to him, put one arm around her father's waist, and the other over her eyes, as if peering into the distance and asked, Is that a stone on the hill, Dad? Recognizing the field of wheat of those with whom we work and associate has the power to energize, motivate, and fuel that internal engine. Without it, it's like a huge flood of cold water on an otherwise growing campfire. Recognition is the warm ray of sunshine to a cold soul. One such cold soul was a young boy in Detroit whose very receptive teacher understood the power of recognition and asked him one day to find a mouse that was lost in the classroom. We can't see it, Steve, she said. We've looked everywhere. You have the best pair of ears in the class. Can you find it for us, she pled. Truly, nature had given Steve a remarkable set of ears. But this was the first time anyone had recognized it. Years later, Steve said that this simple act of recognition was the beginning of a new life for him. It motivated him to develop his gift of hearing. That act of recognition sparked the fire that led him to become one of the greatest pop singers and songwriters of all time, Stevie Wonder. In the simply stated words of another popular singer, Aretha Franklin, on the topic of recognition, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it really means to me. And so we will in just a moment as we explore that different ways that you can provide both formal and informal recognition can make a difference. Third, the biggest intrinsic motivator is the nature of the work itself and the responsibility given. As I travel all over the world working with dental teams and speaking to dental conventions and seminars, I constantly hear from team members, I want to do and would do more if the dentist would just let me. Being involved in the right kind of work with the right kind of responsibility is a continual motivator. But what's the right kind of work and the right kind of responsibility? That's the question. Author and researcher Daniel Pink has been a recent Crown Council Mentor of the Month guest. In his research, Pink identifies two types of workers, which he calls Type X and Type I. 
Type X workers are fueled by extrinsic factors, hence the label of type X for extrinsic. They're more focused on the external reward to which their activity leads than they are on the intrinsic rewards. Type I workers, on the other hand, are more concerned with the inherent satisfaction of the work itself than the external rewards they receive. Pink holds that type X workers who receive external rewards do well in environments where there is a repetition of routine tasks, where efficiency and productivity improve organizational performance. Type I workers do well in environments where creativity and innovation are key, where the intrinsic rewards associated with coming up with new solutions, discovering new answers, and developing new applications are key to success. No one is simply a type X or type I worker. We all have attributes of both, but most of us have a stronger tendency toward one or the other. Similarly, there are few purely type X or type I jobs. While there are routine tasks in any job, most jobs also require some level of creativity and innovation as well. Pink makes these two conclusions. When it's time to simply crank out the work and it's routine in nature, an external motivator might work just fine. But where we make the mistake is when we attempt to externally motivate people to engage in creativity, innovation, and development. In other words, you can't use type X motivation for type I work. Second, true progress in any organization is made by type I behavior. It's the creativity, problem solving, and idea development that propels an organization further, not simply doing routine tasks faster. Type I's, pink hold, almost always outperform type X's over time. The good news is that type I behavior is made, not born. To that end, pink makes these three suggestions to build more creativity, innovation, and idea development into your organization. Autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Building more of each of these three ingredients into what you do creates an environment of more type I or intrinsic motivation into your organization. Let's take a look at each. One, autonomy. When we have a certain degree of independence in our work and how we go about it, a sense of freedom and creativity emerges. But if we're told exactly what to do and how to do it with strict rules and guidelines, we feel imprisoned and stifled. While policies and procedures are important for any well-run organization, a degree of autonomy fuels the fire of innovation. Giving team members some degree of autonomy in task, how they go about their work, time when they go to work, technique or how they do their work, and team who they work with creates a greater sense of autonomy and personal empowerment. Let's take a look at the specific application of each of those in dentistry. Task. How do you delegate the tasks that need to be done in the practice? Do you delegate the how to do it or do you delegate the result of doing it? The best leaders start by painting the picture of an end result first so that the team member knows what the finished product is supposed to look like. Then they fill in the blanks as needed with the how to do it. A simple example is the job description for a business assistant that says, answer the phone. That tells me what to do, but not what the end result needs to be when I answer the phone. A better description might be, Convert more than 100% of potential new patient phone calls into scheduled appointments with patients who show up and pay. Now I know what the end result is supposed to be. I can use my creativity to come up with every idea possible to get that end result. Some training might be helpful in some guidelines and systems, but the key is delegating the end result first, not just the task. So here's the question. Do you delegate tasks to your team, or do you delegate the desirable end result? When you delegate the end result, you give your team a greater sense of autonomy to use their creativity to achieve success. Time. 
Dental practice teams have to work together on the same time schedule. Giving team members a voice in the office hours and vacation days can increase a sense of autonomy. Crown Council member and mentor Dr. Roy Hammond has shared many times the idea of sitting down with the entire team to plan the year ahead so that everyone can take their vacation days on the same days so that the days that are spent in the office are the most productive, giving everyone more autonomy and freedom on the days out of the office. Question. How much voice does the entire team have in the calendar and the planning process each year? Next is technique. To what degree do team members have the opportunity to be their best selves at work? How are you able to go about your daily tasks has a lot to do with the personal satisfaction you get from your work. If the work and what I get to do is a good fit with my personality, then I'm more likely to use my creativity to get the job done. So here's the question. To what degree do team members have the ability to leave their personal signature on their work while working within the prescribed guidelines? Team. How much say does your team have in selection? When you're filling a position in your office, is the team involved in the interview process? Are they allowed to give input before the final decision is made? Who we work with every day may have a bigger impact on the final result than any other factor. Question. How much input do you give your team in the hiring process? Task, time, technique, and team are four critical factors to building a culture of more autonomy in your practice. The more autonomy, the more intrinsic motivation team members will have to do more, create more, and move the team forward. Two, mastery. One of the top three motivators at work is challenge. Having the opportunity to master something new, to grow, to expand, to become better at something. The degree to which team members have the opportunity to learn, grow, and master new skills builds more intrinsic motivation into your culture. There are three basic laws of mastery. First, mastery is a mindset. Some people are mistakenly convinced that intelligence is something with which you are born. Either you have it or you don't. The reality is that all of us can learn and grow. It's a mindset. If I don't believe I'm very smart, I won't make much of an effort to learn. If I believe that intelligence is something that is earned, then I'll strive to get more of it. Instilling and reinforcing the fact that we can all grow and all learn is essential to building a culture of continual improvement and mastery. Second, mastery is a pain. It takes time, effort, and energy to master anything. It's a fact. Be prepared for it and expect it. No pain, no gain, as the familiar athletic saying goes. Reminding everyone that becoming better requires effort, energy, and some discomfort goes a long way to reinforcing a culture of mastery. Third, mastery is a journey, not a destination. We're always striving. We are a work in progress, and we're never finished. Recognizing that continual improvement is just that, continual. It's an essential ingredient to mastery. Mastery is a mindset, a pain, and a journey are the three essential ingredients to building a culture of mastery. Pink's third ingredient to building more intrinsic motivation in your organization is purpose. Everyone needs something for which to live, a reason to work beyond compensation, making a difference, and having a sense of personal satisfaction are what intrinsic motivation is all about. It stems from a sense of personal and professional purpose. Each person needs a purpose and goals. Each organization needs a purpose and goals. What are yours? What are the purpose and goals of your organization? It's the leader's job to help define both. If you're going to build more intrinsic motivation into your organization, it takes more autonomy, mastery, and purpose. The more of those three things you have, the more innovation and creativity will blossom in the organization. Pink makes a strong case for using incentives for routine tasks, but problems that require innovation and creativity require intrinsic motivation, not external prodding. Make sure you know which kind of behavior you're dealing with in order to engage in the right kind of motivation. 
For additional insights into Daniel Pink's ideas, make sure to review the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program by going to crowncouncil.org. Go to the Training tab, then select Mentor of the Month, and then search for Dan Pink in the search bar. In the end, nothing motivates and inspires like personal growth and a sense of achievement. That's the fourth intrinsic job motivator. How that's accomplished on the job is a major question of job design and job enrichment. In attempting to keep team members motivated, growing, and challenged, many leaders make the mistake of reducing personal contribution by just loading the team member up with more work rather than giving opportunities for personal and professional growth. For example, raising a production goal, adding another task to the job description, or removing the most difficult parts of the job in order to free up the team member to do more of the less challenging tasks are just some of the ways leaders discourage rather than motivate team members. Consider these ways of enriching jobs in your practice as ways to build more growth, advancement, challenge, and personal responsibility into the work environment. As team members grow, consider removing some of the controls over them while maintaining their accountability for the end result. Increase the personal accountability for the end result instead of just assigning tasks to be done. Give team members accountability for a complete, natural unit of work, like accountability for hygiene scheduling and production results instead of just scheduling. Give team members additional authority as they grow to make decisions and determine ways to accomplish the end result. Make more information available to team members as they grow. Sharing practice statistics and numbers helps team members grow by seeing the big picture. Introduce new and more difficult tasks not previously handled as a way for the team member to learn, grow, and accomplish something. Assigning team members the specific task of becoming an expert in some area that's important to the office, like perio protocol, HIPAA compliance, or reducing cancellations and no-shows. As you look for ways to help your team members grow, make sure to enrich their job, not just load their job up with more meaningless tasks. So there you are, the top four intrinsic motivators, a sense of accomplishment, recognition, the right kind of work with the appropriate level of responsibility, and personal growth and advancement. When it comes down to it, we all want to grow in our own way, and we love it when we're recognized for our progress. That recognition needs to come informally as well as formally. Before we conclude our discussion about team member motivation and recognition, I'd like to suggest a quick list of common sense ways to informally recognize your team members on a regular basis. One of the fundamental skills of leadership is to make your team members feel important. Here are some reminders of ways you can do that every day. First, do what you say you'll do. Honor your team by showing up early for the morning huddle, Follow through on your commitments and be an example of what you expect them to be. Two, give your team credit for contributions and accomplishments. Use the pronoun we or you when talking about successes in the practice. Be quick to give the credit to the team or to another individual rather than talking about I or me. Third, honor your team in front of your patients. Compliment your team members for a job well done in front of others. I recently heard a doctor compliment a hygienist as the doctor was checking hygiene by saying to the patient, your teeth look first class clean. Mary does a great job, doesn't she? Say please and thank you. Common courtesy goes a long way to communicating the value that you place on your team members. Fifth, listen. Just listen. One of the most powerful motivators is knowing that our ideas and opinions matter. Too many doctors fear that listening means they have to act on what they're told, and so they don't listen. Being heard is 80% of the recognition equation. Sixth, put your praise in writing. A personal note on a paycheck or a thank you note from time to time on a handwritten card can say volumes that the spoken word cannot. Seventh, 
Ask your team their opinion about important decisions before you make that decision. Give the opportunity to give input. My challenge to you is to give some type of informal recognition each day to your team. I remember a doctor once who made the habit of putting a small, smooth stone in his pocket every morning as a reminder to recognize at least one team member that day for their contribution. In 1676, Sir Isaac Newton said, If I have seen further, it is by standing on ye shoulders of giants. Each day in Crown Council offices, Crown Council members stand on the shoulders of giants in order to accomplish great things. Those giants are the team members who serve with you to meet the needs of patients in your community. Remember those giants. Recognize them formally and informally. Remember, without them, we would not be able to stand so tall. Thanks for listening. Now go make it happen.